Hey everybody, welcome back on the Blockworks YouTube channel. This is Alf speaking and today's guest of the show is my dear friend, Dario Perkins. Dario is a managing director of Global Macro at TS Lombard and a great macro mind. By the way, he also supports Milan, as you can see on his back. Dario, how are you doing? Very good, thanks. Uh, you know, last season was really good as a Milan, Milan supporter, but not so much the last few weeks. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and I have to say, Dario, that you, uh, your Italian netiquette when it comes to not breaching Italian food and drink rules is also excellent. You don't drink cappuccino after 11 in the morning. Well done. So uh, my utmost respect, but people know you mostly for your macro stuff. Uh, and if they don't follow you on Twitter, they should, absolutely. Um, I know you've been vocal about um, how higher interest rates might have a different impact across different jurisdictions. We end up talking always about the US, but today maybe it's time to explore a bit what higher interest rates can do to other jurisdictions. So can you drive us a little bit through your thinking there? Yeah, so I think you need to think about interest rates in terms of a sort of flow effect and a stock effect. So as you raise interest rates, there's a sort of immediate effect on the economy. It comes from, you know, making the sort of cost of borrowing immediately higher. And so you see that most clearly in housing markets, because you know, if you're in, if you're a person in the process of buying a home, suddenly the interest rate has gone up 200, 300 basis points. You realize that you can't afford that home or you, you, you no longer want to buy. And so, you know, everywhere we're seeing the sort of immediate consequences of interest rates going up, which is that housing transactions housing demand just completely evaporates. And that has an effect on your economy via sort of construction activity, anything related to real estate. Eventually, you could get sort of job losses in those sectors. So there's an immediate hit to your economy. And that's what I call the sort of flow effect from interest rates, because it's new borrowing, it's new transactions, it's new GDP, you know, that's the bit that gets hit. And then I think you have a sort of stock effect, which is that everybody who is an existing debtor suddenly discovers that the cost of financing those debts is going up. And so that's where we're starting to see a lot more variation across, across countries. So you take the US, you know, everyone is fixated on the US, but most mortgages in the US are fixed at sort of 30-year interest rates. So interest rates going up has no immediate effect on existing debtors. Now, that's very different to the dynamics that we're seeing in other countries like Australia, New Zealand, the UK, you know, as we've seen over the last few weeks. Because, you know, in the UK, our definition of a fixed rate mortgage is typically a two to three year fixed rate mortgage, not a 30 year fixed rate mortgage. So in those parts of the world, you get an extra squeeze that comes from interest rates going up. Now, the classic example of this is the sort of big short. You remember the whole basis of the big short was that all these home buyers in the US in the early 2000s are taking out these adjustable rate mortgages. And so the whole basis of the big short trade was to try to identify that point at which those mortgages would reset at higher interest rates, because that's the point at which people would start to default on those mortgages. That's the point we'd start to see the sort of financial stress. And in the US, there's just no big short right now. Not in not in that sort of that sort of same dynamic. You know, you, you have all fixed rate mortgages. There is no ticking time bomb of these mortgage resets that's waiting to happen. But you look at the UK, you look at Australia, you look at New Zealand, you look at Canada. I mean, Canada just looks horrendous on every metric. You know, there is a much clearer big short in in those parts of the world. And so I guess, you know, my thesis is that in the first part of this year, 
all of these central banks were raising interest rates as quickly as they could. You know, they all felt that they were behind the curve. They all felt that, you know, inflation was sort of rising towards 10%. They're in this desperate hurry to normalize interest rates as quickly as they could. And at some point, we were even getting this sort of reverse currency war, which is that the likes of the ECB, uh, the Bank of England, you know, all of these smaller central banks, they felt they needed to match what the Fed was doing in order to prevent their currencies from going down. I think that the sort of trade-offs around that are now shifting because I think these central banks realize that their economies are much more sensitive to interest rates going up than the US economy. If they try to match what the Fed is doing, they are not going to be supporting their currencies. They're going to be causing, you know, huge problems in their domestic housing markets, huge problems in their in the domestic economies. And actually, they might discover that their currencies just end up weaker anyway, and they end up with a sort of financial crisis and very deep recession. So I think what we're starting to see is a sort of non-Fed pivot which is yet the Fed is still hiking, the Fed is still very hawkish, the Fed is still threatening to do 75, you know, forever. Um, But the Bank of England, the Bank of Australia, the Bank of Canada, you know, these guys are realizing that they're in this sort of no-win situation now. And actually, you know, they need to focus a bit more on what their domestic economies are doing. And I think it all comes down to the different sensitivity of interest rates that is inherent in their economies. Dario, this resonates very well with the article I wrote last week called A Sudden Change of Art, where basically I was pinpointing similar jurisdictions, Canada, Europe, Australia. They all seem to have this change of heart at some point when it comes to chasing higher and higher interest rates to fight inflation because of inherent fragilities of their domestic economies. It can be the structure of the Eurozone, it can be the Canadian market, the Canadian housing market, the Australian housing market, etc., etc. So let's discuss for a second this nuance that seems to be coming back to the table between financial stability to a certain extent and fighting inflation as a mandate from a central bank. Let's take Canada as an example. We can discuss the UK as well later on because you are based there. But let's start from Canada. Take that as an example. When I look at Canadian private sector debt to GDP, we are now looking at over 230%, which is private debt only, which is the say higher than the peak of the, of the private debt to GDP that Japan had during the real estate bubble of the late 80s, beginning of the 90s, when the Tokyo Imperial Palace was worth more than California alone, if you remember. I mean, that was crazy. Now, Canada is a higher level of private debt to GDP than Japan had at the peak of that bubble. So if you are the Bank of Canada today and you have a housing market that has been leveraged and has been one of the engine of growth and wealth creation over the last decade in Canada, How do you face this dichotomy between financial stability and still having very high levels of inflation? Well, I think it sort of screams that you need gradualism, that, you know, this sort of period that we've been through of very rapid rate hikes, trying to get back to some sort of neutral, that that ends. And you now need to focus a little bit more on what's happening in terms of your domestic economy. And that sort of calls for a more gradual approach. And, And I think... You know, Canada is is by far the worst, you know, on all of these metrics. I mean, you know, what are you looking at as a sort of vulnerability? Well, we know from history that very rapid periods of credit growth are always a sort of red flag. Canada has had that. A bunch of these other countries have had it. Actually, the worst offenders this time around are the countries that didn't experience a banking crisis in 2008 because they've just continued to run up leverage since that global financial crisis. And so, so Canada is a sort of extreme one. And then you're looking at how much of asset prices gone up, particularly here housing. 
And, you know, Canada's house prices have gone up hugely over the past decade, but they went up 40% during the pandemic period alone, which is another sort of immediate red flag. Then you're looking at the sort of nature of the loans. And so this comes back to the sort of, you know, are they are they fixed or variable rate? And what Canada has done is actually shift into variable rate mortgages over the past five years. So on every one of these metrics, Canada looks really dangerous. Now, the way that I model this is to look at debt servicing ratios, because there's no sort of magic number to debt to GDP. You know, we don't know if 220% is too high. We don't know if 150% is too high. But you need to look at the sort of debt servicing costs. And so the BIS does this database of debt servicing costs for all of the OECD countries. And so what I do is I, I take those debt servicing ratios for companies and for households. I then uh, run a regression of those on the level of debt and the level of interest rates. I then take uh, the sort of terminal interest rate that is built into sort of forward curves, plug that into sort of debt servicing ratios and look at what's happening to debt servicing ratios over the next two or three years. Now, all of those countries that we've identified, those are all countries that have experienced a very big increase in debt servicing ratios. And in some of those countries, the countries that have actually accumulated more debt over the past decade, they're going to be looking at sort of record high debt servicing ratios. Now, that's the bit that sort of screens financial instability risk, because, you know, if you're looking at debt servicing ratios that are really high by any sort of historical standard, then that sort of screams to you that some people are going to be really struggling to meet those payments. And that's where you're likely to get some sort of, you know, crisis. Now, the other part of this is that uh, a lot of the debt that is actually, if if you look at those sort of housing markets, a lot of that has been sort of traditional debt, banking sector debt. So Canada, you know, bank debt, uh, Australia, UK. Uh, But globally, we've also seen this shift in the sort of source of debt. So debt moved out of the banking sector and it moved into sort of capital markets. And, you know, I used to call this the buy side bubble, which was disastrous marketing if you're a sell side economist, because, you know, you're basically accusing your clients of inflating the bubble. But, you know, you look particularly on the corporate side. So we had a decade of, you know, very high uh, corporate debt issuance. And all of that was in the form of, of sort of bonds. And all of that was being sold into capital markets. So you have this other dynamic, which is that this sort of deflation of the buy side bubble. And again, you know, the UK has been a sort of uh, trailblazer in this because in, in, you know, in the last two months, we saw this really dangerous dynamic in the UK pension fund industry, which is that pension funds, you know, as interest rates went up, they were getting squeezed on their collateral. They were then sort of, you, you're sort of getting these asset fire sales. And that was making the whole dynamic worse. You're getting this sort of amplification process. So that's the other dimension to this is that, you know, you, you have a bunch of economies where you look at their housing markets, you look at their banking sectors, you say, yes, these have a sort of classic, um, you know, leverage problem. Interest rates going up sort of threatens financial stability. But then we have this other dimension, which is the sort of buy side bubble angle of this, which is that a lot of these institutional investors could be taking huge losses on a lot of these sort of assets that they've been buying over the past decade. And that's, you know, we don't fully understand that part of this, this sort of debt issue. But that's the bit I think we need to watch particularly closely. Yeah. So Dario, now we're talking about the UK, which makes me think about is there just an easy fix here, the so-called non-Fed pivot, as you just said? So when a central bank looks at financial stability risks and just decides to basically let go of their 
very committed inflation fight to rather preserve a bit of the financial stability that seems to be more shaky. If I look at the UK, um, there are roughly 2 million households that next year need to re refinance mortgages. They've been locked in at sub 2% levels for the last five years. They're now about to roll over and the new mortgage rates will probably be what, 6 or 7%. So that, as you said, massively increases debt services ratios immediately, which puts a strain on households' budgets and therefore marginally increases financial risks. But the Bank of England could at that point, like it rescued the, the UK pension fund industry from a uh, collateral squeeze liquidity cascade event, it could in principle just say, okay, let's not just go after it when it comes to inflation. We'll be happy with you know, raising rates maybe to 3 or 4% and actually sit there without punishing too much households and therefore without increasing financial stability risks too much. Is that, is that so simple? Can central banks just literally stop fighting inflation and rather only care about financial stability? Or is there a release valve somewhere? Uh, in a sense, I don't think they they are. Because you know what happens here is that raising interest rates actually has a bigger effect on your economy. So actually, if you're worried about your domestic economy overheating uh, and you've got all of this debt, then raising interest rates actually has a more sort of deflationary effect on your, your economy. So, you know, the, the sort of trade-off is very sort of short term. You know, if the Bank of England were to raise interest rates to 6%, which is what was priced in, say, two months ago, one month ago, things are moving so fast in the UK, I can't even keep track. Um, you know, they would cause a massive housing recession and any sort of risk of inflation would just disappear. So, you know, I, I think it's a very short term trade-off. The challenge for these central banks, I think, is to actually try to maintain their monetary squeeze so, you know, they've raised interest rates some distance. They want to maintain that monetary squeeze, but they don't want it to sort of tip over into financial instability. So what the Bank of England is effectively doing, and, it, and particularly when it was buying gilts, is that it was trying to um, sort of cap yields in a sense. It, it, want, it wanted interest rates to go up, but it wanted it to happen in a sort of orderly way. It didn't want these sort of dangerous dynamics in the financial sector to kick in. So, you know, the easiest way out of all of this is for the Fed to pivot, because if the Fed pivots, it eases all of the pressure on these central banks. At the moment, these central banks are in this really difficult situation where their currencies are going to go down, whatever they do, because if they don't follow the Fed in raising interest rates, their currencies will go down. If they do follow the Fed and raise interest rates so much that they cause domestic financial instability, their currencies will still go down. So, you know, the, the sort of whole reverse currency war that we've been in, I think, is now effectively ended. I think these central banks have realized that, you know, allowing their currency to go down a bit and having a little bit more of an inflation overshoot probably makes more sense than just trashing their economies and ending up with an even weaker currency, you know, in six months time. It's a very interesting shift. Everybody looks at the Fed pivot and you're basically presenting the case for the non-Fed pivot, which means, you know, other, other central banks are basically at the margin of our dollar-based monetary system and therefore their fragilities are generally much higher than they are in the US itself. And therefore they are the first one required to make this nuanced assessment between financial stability risks and the risks of not fighting inflation rather than the Federal Reserve where everybody's focusing on. So can we talk for a second about the US? We've been 15 minutes in and we haven't talked much about the US, which is nowadays in macro, uh, a very interesting phenomenon. Now you said, Alf, look, I don't think that the US is 
yet uh, having to consider too much financial stability risks, especially compared to other central banks. Is there a point or do you see at least some cracks appearing somewhere that might want to make Powell and company reconsider a bit their stance? Or do you see the US um, private sector and financial markets being able to withstand Fed funds at maybe 6%, for example? Well, I think you've had a definite squeeze on financial conditions you know, all year. Uh, the equity market has, has basically gone down through that period. We've had this sort of derating in, 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 in US equities. Um, you know, that was part of the mechanism. That's what they wanted. It was fairly orderly. So it never, it, there were times when it looks like, you know, it might tip into something more dangerous, but, you know, that never quite materialized. So I think they've been perfectly happy with that. Um, I think they have the risk for the US is a fairly normal sort of plain vanilla recession. And it comes from the housing market. You know, that famous study, uh, housing is the business cycle. Yeah. Well, housing is the recession risk. You know, the, the interest rate increases that we had are going to destroy, are destroying uh, construction activity, are destroying home building, uh, you know, residential investment. You know, every sort of 100 basis points in interest rates uh, cuts about 10% off uh, residential investment, which cuts off about half a percentage point of GDP. So you have a sort of classic uh, recessionary dynamic that comes from uh, interest rates going up and comes from the housing market. Looking beyond that, I, I don't think you have anything sort of similar to the early 2000s. You know, we don't have that big short. We don't have subprime mortgages. We don't have adjustable rate mortgages. We don't have a whole sort of global financial system leveraged up on, on asset-backed securities in the same way. Uh, and so, you know, I don't see the sort of financial risks that are associated with this in, in the same way as they were in the 2000s. I think this is a sort of classic recessionary dynamic, if it, if it is a recession. But actually, I also think there's a lot of resilience in the, in the US economy. You know, f firstly, you have very strong balance sheets, you know, even as asset prices have come down, uh, balance sheets are still in a very strong position. There's still a lot of accumulated savings on people's balance sheets, particularly wealthier people's balance sheets. Uh, a big part of the slowdown this year has come from very high levels of inflation. As inflation comes down, real incomes will actually rebound because nominal wage growth is still fairly uh, you know, robust. I think we have uh, massive labor shortages in the US, you know, at least 5 million workers. A lot of that has happened on the supply side. So, you know, there's been no growth in the US labor force over the past two and a half years, which is really unusual and gives you a massive shortage of workers. So I think companies will naturally want to hoard labor in a way that they didn't want to do in previous recessions. So I think actually the US economy could prove quite resilient to this tightening which just raises your terminal interest rate, which just means the Fed will raise more. The, the resilience, um, you know, that other countries have just doesn't match that. You know, that's the problem here. The US can cope with higher interest rates. A lot of these other countries cannot cope with higher interest rates. Interestingly, Dario, if I think of this dichotomy between the idiosyncratic differences uh, between the US economy and other economies at the fringes, a stronger U.S. economy, a Fed more committed and less nuanced than other central banks would be, That's that kind of tells me that interest rate differentials you are suggesting between 
were a credible terminal rate in the US, were a credible terminal rate in Canada or in the UK or in the Eurozone or in Australia could be, actually this, this sister, this difference could become wider than it is priced today. Because still today you have terminal rates everywhere else in the world being priced relatively aggressively, looking at other jurisdictions, which makes interest rate differentials between US treasuries and maybe European bonds, for example, not extremely acute. But in the scenario you're depicting, actually, this difference could, could increase materially. Historically, this generally points to even a stronger dollar than it is today. Now, my question for you is, would that dollar wrecking ball be perhaps even more complicating the, the issue and recessionary risks abroad? I mean, what I'm trying to find out is, is that so simple? Where are the, the trade-offs that non-Fed pivots would actually uh, imply from other central bank perspective? Basically, where do you see the best risk-reward opportunities over the next six to 12 months in, in markets if your thesis actually unfolds? Well, I think this is naturally strong dollar. Uh, I think that terminal interest rates in the US can probably go up further. I don't think that's the case anywhere else. I think terminal interest rates in other jurisdictions will probably come down. I think, you know, the sort of um, broadbent speech uh, last week, you know, was very significant. I mean, he basically said, you know, the market expectations for interest rates are just way too high. You know, if we plug that into our models, we're creating a sort of gut-wrenching recession in the UK, and we don't want to do that. You know, very clear signal of, about market pricing. So I think that's naturally a strong uh, dollar environment. I think you're right that what we have here is a sort of coordination failure, you know, and this is the sort of inherent nature of um, having the US as the reserve currency. You know, we, we periodically get these issues. Now, in previous in previous sort of tightening cycles from the Fed, it was usually the emerging markets that blew up first. Well, this one seems to be threatening the developed economies in a way that we haven't seen in a, in a long time. If you still count the UK as a developing economy, which is as a, as a developed economy, which is, you know, a matter of debate on Twitter, as, as far as I can see. Um, but it's, a, it's, you know, and, and, you know, it's definitely true that the dollar going up is this sort of wrecking ball, you know, and it, or you can, you can think of it as a sort of, you know, sucking all of the oxygen out of the room. That's sort of my favorite analogy of this because, you know, we have seen, um, you know, very clearly over the last decade that whenever you have periods of dollar strength, you get periods of risk off in global financial markets. Uh, the, you know, the balance sheets of dollar debtors deteriorate, cross-border lending between countries deteriorates. There's even a link with housing. So there's this, there was this good sort of BIS paper just at the start of the pandemic linking the sort of, um, you know, synchronization of global house prices to, to what's happening with dollar and dollar lending ability. So, you know, as the dollar goes up, you always get this sort of really difficult period for global financial markets because it just doesn't work the way that textbooks say it is. You know, the whole sort of textbook view of currencies uh, just doesn't apply to the dollar because, you know, everybody invoices in dollars. So when the dollar goes up, world trade goes down. You know, you don't get the sort of, um, uh, you know, some countries winning and some countries losing that is sort of inherent in textbook analogy. But also everybody borrows in dollars. And so you get balance sheet stress. Yeah. And I think it's only over the last decade that economists have really understood the role that the dollar plays in the global financial system. It seems ridiculous, but, you know, up until a decade ago, we were still using sort of textbook analysis that was sort of written in the 1970s and it just didn't apply. And so, you know, very clearly, you know, I think the BIS has sort of been ahead of a lot of this stuff, but looking at the role that the dollar plays, 
you know, I think you're right. And and the sort of interaction between the sort of dollar wrecking ball, but also the buy side bubble, you know, the, there's been these sort of interactions between those two things. And at the start of the, the COVID crisis, you really saw that, you know, you, you saw the pressures on dollar uh, funding, dollar liquidity, at the same time that we were seeing these sort of asset fire sales from institutional investors. I think the one reassuring point of all of this is that I think central banks understand these dynamics a lot better than they used to understand them. You know, they've spent a sort of decade studying sort of shadow banking and the role of institutional investments and and the role of the sort of non-bank financial sector. And what they can do is they can provide that backstop. And that was sort of, again, the lesson from the UK. You know, when this stuff started to really unravel a few weeks ago, the Bank of England stepped in very quickly to sort of stop that dynamic. And weirdly, you know, having a credit system that is so based on sort of capital markets has sort of perversely given central banks even more power in order to sort of step in when they need to and halt those dynamics. So we're in this sort of, we've been in this really sort of bizarre situation where the central banks are effectively trying to secure the wheels onto the car just so they can drive more forcefully into the wall, which is, you know, you're sort of plugging these problems in financial markets and, you know, buying gilts if you have to, but with the view to still raising interest rates. So it's been, it's been a sort of weird period. Yeah. But I, I do think, you know, that could be the lesson going forward. You know, the lesson in all of this is that you need more gradualism. And that's where the UK went wrong because it went very aggressive on fiscal and that meant they had to go very aggressive on monetary too. And everybody knew that that would just drive the economy into an immediate sort of crisis. And so the currency went down. If you can get a sort, sort of more gradual approach from fiscal, so more targeted support for your economy, if you can get a more gradual approach from central banks, so they're raising interest rates more gradually, but also if you have central banks prepared to backstop, backstop these sort of you know, when things break, they can step in and maybe, you know, buy some securities here and there. There's a chance that, you know, we can sort of navigate our way through this. But it's it, I think it could get quite messy. And there's going to be times when it's actually quite scary, as it has been in the UK over the past month. Larry, it's been a pleasure to hear you elaborate when everybody's looking for the Fed pivot, to hear you elaborate on the non-Fed pivot, which is just the result of your understanding of the monetary system and of the fact that there are nuances actually now being put on the table, forcefully being put on the table of policymakers outside the US. And while everybody's focusing on the Fed pivot, there might be a non-Fed pivot already ongoing. So thanks for sharing your view with us. I just want to ask you, um, if the listeners here on Blockworks and on YouTube haven't yet followed you, terrible idea, but in case let's fix that, where can they find more about you? Uh, best place is Twitter. So my Twitter hand, my Twitter handle is just Dario Perkins, one word. Uh, you know, I'm on there quite a lot, sharing charts and analysis and blogs. So you know, that's the best place to start. Yeah, Dario's Twitter account is really good at Dario Perkins. Go and follow my dear friend Dario. Thanks for being here with us, Dario, and I hope to have you back soon on Blockworks. It's been a pleasure. Good to see you.